But it is good to be back with you. And as Tim said earlier, we are starting a new series today that, Lord willing, will take us all the way to Easter. And on Easter, we will be, of course, celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But between now and then, we're going to be looking at words from our resurrected Savior. In fact, as we look at the Gospels, much of what we read, obviously, is, is building up to his, his, uh, his suffering and his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. And most of those words, obviously, are, are in his earthly ministry prior to that. Well, now we're going to be looking at words from a, from a different perspective. These are going to be words from the throne room that I think could be very fitting and appropriate for us in the day and age in which we are living. And yes, these are words to seven specific churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, but as we will see, they are words that are very applicable to churches today, including our church, the Fellowship of Wildwood. So I'd like to begin with a quote from a pastor and author. Many of us uh, uh, serving as pastors and elders met uh, Pastor Juan Sanchez at High Point Baptist Church several years ago when we attended a conference there. And this is what he wrote. He said, there's never been a more dangerous time for the church. It's swimming against the moral tide of culture and is, frankly, struggling to keep its head above water. From the outside, it faces growing opposition from tyrannical rulers and the reality of increasing persecution at the hands of an anti-Christian majority. From within, some church leaders are leading Christians astray with new and seemingly more attractive interpretations of Scripture. And those who are trying to stay faithful are left scratching their heads in bewilderment at a loss over how to respond. The situation looks incredibly bleak. And so when we, when we read those words, most of us naturally assume that he is describing the church today. But do you know what he's writing about? He, he's actually describing the situation of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And so what's striking is the parallels, that even though these are, are cities and churches that, 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 that are a long way away from here, and the church settings obviously uh, centuries ago when they existed, and yet there are uh, so many connections as we read that description. We know that we too live in a culture with immorality and idolatry, in their time, they had instability as well. They were living in the days of the Roman Empire, and particularly under the emperor of Domitian in that first century, there was, there was great persecution placed upon the early Christians. So they lived in a time of persecution and conflict. And yet we today say we are experiencing some of the same issues we see the idolatry, we see the immorality, we see the lack of stability, we see the conflict, the divisiveness. And we might ask ourselves, why is it that we see the same kinds of things so many years later? And I think the answer is because we are facing the same enemy. The same enemy that was behind what they were dealing with then is the same one that is at work in our world today. And so the book of Revelation indeed is a book of prophecy, but it is also a letter it's a letter written to churches that, that uh, we will see connect even to our day and time. And there will be much that we can glean and learn by studying these seven churches. 
If we were to visit the sites of where these churches uh, were at the time, because they were actual churches, uh, they, they were in literal uh, cities, they would, they, uh, we would find them in the, the modern-day country of Turkey. And so if you look at the map, you'll, you'll see roughly where they are located there on the, uh, on the western side of the country of Turkey. And uh, you can see that the, the proximity of the seven churches was, was uh, fairly close. In fact, our, our family, when we lived in Athens, we had, we had a meeting in uh, that part of Turkey and were able to drive to some of the, some of the ruins of, of, these, uh, of these different cities. And, and in some cases, you can even see one from another. I mean, you can see one often in the horizon. So they, there is some, some proximity to some of this. And we're going to be looking at each city uh, beginning next week. We're going to take one per week, with the exception of week three. We'll look at the churches of Smyrna and Pergamum in one time. Those are uh, smaller uh, uh, sections. And so we'll cover all seven churches over the next six weeks, and we'll think about the context in which they were written. We'll think about the setting, the, the, the religious beliefs of, of, their, of, their, of their time, and what it was that they, as a church, were facing. We'll see that the Lord Jesus has, in some cases, many words of affirmation. In some cases, he has, he has words of correction. But in every case, he has, he has a desire to lovingly guide his church forward, to believe and to stay strong and to be what, a word that we'll see over and over again is the word overcomer. And we'll see that he is encouraging them to be overcomers, recognizing that they, like we, live in a challenging time. And there are threats and there are trials and there are temptations. And yet he comes alongside with even what we'll see today from Revelation chapter 1. He comes to give encouragement, and he comes to sustain us. So let's begin uh, by looking at chapter 1. In fact, I thought about just jumping straight into to chapter 2 and looking at the first church. And then as I read back over chapter 1 again, I thought, no, we really need to, we need to get the full picture here. We need to see the context out of which John is receiving the vision. Uh, he is on the Isle of Patmos. And, uh, and he is receiving something that God is giving him to see, and then he writes down. And so it's inspired words. It is a book of prophecy, but it's also a letter, so it's very unique. And we'll begin uh, reading the first three verses. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. And let's just stop right there, because so often when we think of the book of Revelation, we are probably thinking of these, of these images, uh, whether it be the images of, of, of Christ on the throne surrounded by, by, the, uh, by, by the, the great crowd of worshipers, or maybe we're thinking about, about the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the images of, of, of Jesus Christ, the victor, the one who is, is vanquishing evil and sin once and for all, and we, we think about the dramatic images that are there. But I want us to, to begin with these first verses because really they begin with a promise. Did you see in verse 3 that it, it speaks of a blessing and a, a, a promise that's given to a certain group of people? Who is it? Who is it that has promised this blessing? Do you see it there at the beginning of verse 3? 
The one who read aloud, the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And that's what we endeavor to do. We want to read these words. We want to do the second part. We want to hear. We want to, we want to receive. And then we also want to do the third part. It says to keep the words. And that, that, that brings about the idea that, that, we, that we take in and we put into practice the words that we read. And what we see here is a promise of a pathway to a blessing. Now, we don't know and won't assume what, what, in what way that blessing might come to us, but we can see that God has said, those who hear these words and keep them will be blessed. And so I don't know about you, but I would love to receive a blessing from the Lord. I'd love for our church to continue to experience the blessing of God. And so I think that the looking at these uh, letters to the seven churches will be, will be very, very important. We too are a church living in an age that is contrary to the values and the beliefs of the gospel. And so what words might a church like ours need to hear? When there's persecution or when there is division or immorality or idolatry all around us, what, what kind of a reminder might the church need to hear? When the people of God are, are discouraged, or if you look back over the last two years of a pandemic, there may even, even be a level of fearfulness that has come in. Well, in those situations, what vision might the church need to see? What we will have here in front of us is a vision that God is in control, that he is on his throne, that he is the risen Savior who is victorious, and that he has a message for his church. Again, he is not on the cross. At this time, he is on the throne, risen, ascended, exalted, and glorified. And so we will be hearing words from him in this setting. And from there, we get a picture, a vision of what he is like as our good shepherd, the one who is the head of our church, and as the Lord who speaks a word to the churches, including ours. So I want to pick back up in verse 4. And uh, I thought about doing as I typically do, going a few verses and kind of structuring an outline uh, on that. But instead, I'm going to do it a little different. I'd like for us just to read it from verse 4 all the way to the end of the chapter. That way we see the, 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 the larger block. We, we see it in it and in, in, in the way that it's connected and that we can, uh, that we can glean uh, what it is that the Lord has given to John uh, for us. So let's pick back up in verse 4. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you. From, who, from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth 
will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He, He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So with that in mind, let's consider this passage from the throne room. It gives us insight about our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And first of all, I want us to note the presence of Jesus. The seven lampstands described in verse 12 and in verse 20 are the seven churches. And these churches were the original recipients of these letters. A lampstand, of course, is something that holds up a light so that the light can, can, uh, can be spread, that it can disseminate over the dark world. And, and we think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said to his followers, you are the light of the world. Remember, that, that's a, that is a picture for us as his followers to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into a dark world. That is, that is our commission. And yet, as we see here in Revelation chapter 1, that, that this light goes forth not just as individual followers, but also collectively as the church. And yet, it doesn't stop there because it's not just the church universal. He was speaking of seven lampstands representing seven local churches, just like our local assembly right here is the Fellowship of Wildwood. 
We see that, that the light is to shine into the community through the local church. And yet, who is in the midst of these seven churches? If you look at verse 13, you'll see a special title that is given. It is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Jesus Christ is right there with these churches. When you think about that title, maybe you remember the book of Daniel and uh, this prophetic uh, statement uh, saying that the Messiah would be the Son of Man. You may remember that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he took on that title as well just to connect the dots that he indeed was the, the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies of Daniel. And yet here he is, once again, taking on that title as the Son of Man. And so we remember back and we see that these churches were in danger. Many of them were in crisis. And as we, as we see and, and, and think about the context, which we'll do more next week, many of these churches were second generation at this point. And there were challenges, there were struggles, there were trials. And yet, were they alone? Absolutely not. What we see here is that the presence of Jesus Christ is among his people. Jesus is with us, and his presence makes all the difference. In fact, as I thought about that, I was thinking back to the, the days of the patriarchs. Do you remember how many times that they heard a similar phrase where God would say, I will be with you? Do you remember back in the days of Moses when, when he was fulfilling God's call upon his life that he too heard the statement, I will be with you? Do you remember that in the New Testament times as, as Jesus was giving the great commission, what was it that he told his followers? I will be with you. And here we see a picture from the throne room that yes, indeed, Jesus is present with his people. It's comforting for us to know that we are not alone, that he will never leave us or forsake us. Notice also it says in verse 20 that Jesus has the seven stars in his right hand. These seven stars are identified as angelos. Sometimes that word is translated angel. Sometimes it's translated messenger. And there is some debate among theologians as is, is he speaking of, a, of an earthly messenger to a church? Or is there truly an angel that has been, that has been assigned to each local church? And there's, there's, there's really a lot of support for that. Even when you think about how that word is typically translated, speaking of a, of a heavenly angel. And going back even into the book of Daniel and, and, and seeing the interaction there in that time uh, with, with, with heavenly beings and the idea of spiritual warfare and, and so forth, that, that it, it just gives us just a bit of, of, a, of, of, of insight into what may be happening in the heavenlies. But what I want to emphasize here is that Jesus is the one who is holding them in his right hand. The right hand, of course, speaking of power and authority. The fact that Jesus protects his own. Again, Juan Sanchez, he writes, he is with us. He cares for us. He protects us. He provides for us. He holds us in his right hand from which nothing or no one can snatch us away. And this passage in Revelation 1 really reminds me of the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 16 when he says, I will build 
my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that's a strong statement, isn't it? Strong statement. He says, it's my church. I'm going to build it in the most powerful, uh, seemingly most powerful source. When it comes up against it, will not defeat it because I, I am the one who holds the true authority, the true power. And so we see that, we are reminded of that here in Revelation chapter 1. And as we think about a world that's in chaos, and as we've already heard, some parts of the world, thinking of Eastern Europe and in the conflict, uh, we we are comforted to know that, that we don't go through this world alone. Jesus is present with his people. Secondly, I want us to see the glory of Jesus, because I think the description here of Jesus is absolutely fascinating. If you look again at what John saw uh, in seeing the resurrected Jesus and and, uh, describing him in the middle of verse 13, he says, the son of man dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. This would would be uh, a description of a priest. They would understand this this robe and belt would have been been bringing about the idea of of a priest, one who represents God to the people and one who represents the people to God, right? That, That bridge, and he's the ultimate priest, the great high priest. And here he is being described in such way. Verse 14, the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, his eyes like a fiery flame, his feet like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. Now just think for a minute that that John was able to see this, right? He's given this vision, now he's writing about it. But let's look as a cross-reference to the book of Daniel, also a prophetic book, also a, a place in which, in which Daniel was given a vision. And this is what he said in chapter 10. I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from Upphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Do do you see the the parallels between these? What what John saw and what Daniel saw, they were the same and they were were doing the best they could to, to describe what Jesus in the throne room looked like. White hair representing wisdom. In fact, eternal wisdom in his case. Eyes of flaming fire representing knowledge. In fact, divine omniscience. The bronze arms and feet, of course, they they represent strength, but it's it's even more than that because this idea of of the metals going through the furnace and the, the, the idea of pure metals being used, it's a picture really of of divine judgment. This this picture of, again, we think of of Jesus and his earthly ministry. This this is giving us a a fuller picture of the risen Savior, of his strength, of his authority, of his divinity. Again, we read about his voice, like a mighty cascading waterfall. Maybe, Maybe you've been to one of the great waterfalls 
in, in the world. And if you get up too close to it and you try to have a conversation with someone, uh, can you hear what they say? I mean, it's completely drowned out, right? So, so, so here we have John just trying to come up with some way of saying this is what his voice is like. It's, it's just, it's overpowering everything. And then he speaks about the double-edged sword representing really a weapon of war. And Jesus will indeed bring ultimate victory to his people, to his bride. If you continue reading, I was reading uh, some of the latter chapters of Revelation, and, and you just see this picture of, 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 of the mighty Jesus Christ avenging, his bri- uh, avenging evil and defending his bride and, and preparing uh, for, for eternity. But then it also mentions a face, his face shining like the sun. And maybe that brings to mind the experience that the handful of disciples had as they were at the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember the, the bright light, the, 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 the light that they saw. Or maybe you can think of, of, of Saul on the Damascus Road. You remember the, the light was just blinding to him when, uh, when he had the encounter there with the Lord. Well, here we have that light again. And in fact, Revelation 21 speaks about it in the New Jerusalem by saying, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. Isn't that amazing just to think about the glory of Jesus Christ? Again, being reminded in chapter one of the glory emanating from him. It's no surprise then, I think, when we get down to verse 17 and we read how John responds. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And you're like, yeah, I probably would have too, right? Just overwhelmed by what he was seeing, overwhelmed by the glory. But yet let's remember that as one of his, it wasn't a time of, 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 of fear because, because uh, we will see that, that he indeed has a word to say, don't be afraid. And yet he was overwhelmed by what he was, what he was, what he was saying. I really think that there's one word that gives a reasonable response to what John was experiencing. You know what that word is? Worship, worship. I think when we have an encounter with Jesus and we have an understanding of his glory, I think that really the response is worship. Now, I remember back and and the the response that Isaiah had, and again, almost like John, right, falling down before him, and I, and I, I recognize all of that, but I think that it leads us and guides us to a time of worship. And if you think about that, in the days of these seven churches, the Roman Empire had a little bit to say about the way they worshiped. In fact, in the reign of Emperor Domitian, this was a time in which every citizen was demanded to burn incense and say these words about the Caesar. Dominus et Deus, that Caesar is Lord and God. It's emperor worship. And they would have been required to do that. They, of course, would have had a problem with it, and I'm sure that, that they, would have, they would have refused to do that. I can remember being in the, in the, in the ruins of the ancient city of Corinth, and, and there is in that city also uh, one that was founded in the days of the Roman Empire. And there was a, 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 little, a little place with engravings of, of the divine name of Caesar, is really what it said in, in Latin. 
And it would have been a place where incense would have been burnt and where they would have said that, uh, that Caesar is Lord and God, those, of course, who were not uh, followers of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if we had similar edicts like worshiping this earthly ruler Domitian or modern-day leader like Vladimir Putin or another human being that we are told we are to say these words about when we have been given a vision of Revelation chapter 1 and see this is the real Lord. In fact, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We will worship him. Whatever the consequences, whatever the aftermath might be for our time here on earth, we will not bow to any other than this one Jesus Christ. That's, I think, what we gain when we read about the words to these churches. Again, you could continue reading in Revelation 4 and 5, and you could get even even greater insight into how he is worshipped as his, his throne is surrounded by worshipers. But for us today, there is a call here to worship Jesus. We see the the presence of Jesus, we see the glory of Jesus, and finally, number three, we see the words of Jesus. And I want us to go quickly back to the middle of verse 17 and read what it says. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Let me just ask you, church, what is the first thing that Jesus says to him? What does he say? First words. Don't be afraid. Fear not. These are words, again, we could go all the way back through biblical history, right? How many times did the patriarchs, how many times did, did the psalmist, how many times throughout the Bible do we read these words, don't be afraid, fear not? And yet here we are in the book of Revelation, once again, our comforting good shepherd telling us, do not be afraid. There is no need to fear because Jesus is ultimately victorious. And if you look at the rest of the passage, it says he is the first and the last. He is the living one, alive forever and ever. And I don't want to miss even the the demeanor in which he said it because the verse there says he laid his right hand on me. You see like the comforting touch of our Savior saying, do not be afraid. Commentator Greg Beale writes it this way when he says, the goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out his purposes even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and apparent satanic domination. It is the Bible's battle cry of victory. For in it, more than anywhere else in the New Testament, is revealed the final victory of God over all the forces of evil. As such, it is an encouragement to God's people to persevere in the assurance that their final reward is certain and to worship and glorify God despite trials and despite temptations." So friends, that sets a bit of a theme for us for the next six weeks as we think, how can we hear the words? How can we respond? How can we take heart and courage even in the days in which we find ourselves? We're going to see that these are words given not only to these seven churches, but beyond that. Look at what chapter 2, verse 7 says. Let anyone who has ears to hear, 
listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's a cry here, a call here for anyone and everyone to draw near and listen to the word of the Lord, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'll tell you that this is a time for us to not look at the circumstances of our lives or the circumstances of this world from a mere earthly perspective. And I know that's hard. This this is easier said than done, right? But it's time to, to also rise above that earthly perspective and remember this one, the heavenly perspective, the view, if you will, from the throne room to get a glimpse. And and what is it that we see? We see the king of kings in full control. We see the king present with his people. We see the king who will vanquish evil. And by the end of the book, we can read about the eternal inheritance prepared for us. Throughout the book of Revelation, we hear about those known as the overcomers. And in fact, there are 15 promises to those who overcome, which we will see over the next six weeks. So there's a call for you and me to overcome, to overcome the trials and the temptations that this world has to offer, and instead overcome, yes, by the blood of the Lamb, to overcome by His grace, by His mercy, and to overcome for His glory. So in conclusion, I want us to look again at verse 3 of chapter 1, and then we'll pray. It says, blessed is the one, this is the blessing, upon those who read aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. So dear friends, will you be one of the ones Will, we'll be, will we be part of that as a church family in reading his word, hearing it, but then also keeping it, obeying it? You see, the choice is up to us. But I don't know about you, but I would love for us to receive a blessing from God. In fact, I'll testify to the fact that we have received blessings from God, right? And we want to draw near to him. We want to pay attention to his word. We want to receive it. We want to learn And ultimately, we want him to be glorified. So church, are you ready to hear what the Spirit has said to the churches? Well, let's be praying about that in this coming week, and we'll look forward to chapter 2 next week. Would you stand with me as we pray? Our great God and heavenly Father, as we read your word today, we are reminded of your glory, and we are grateful for your love and your mercy. So Father, help us to draw near, to draw near to one another as a church family during these times, to offer support and encouragement to one another. Lord, help us to have a light, the the light of the fellowship of Wildwood that is on a lampstand. Lord, may it disseminate across our city and even to other parts of this world. Lord, may we be reminded of your presence among us. May we draw near to you today. And may we worship you in spirit and in truth. God, as we draw near to you, we pray that that you would draw us closer. Closer to what you have for us. That we may 
continue to be matured and changed for the sake of the gospel and for your glory. Father, we pray for this upcoming study that you will use it for your purpose among us as a church family. And we know, Lord, that these are your words and we have faith in them. And we ask, Lord, for you to use them for your purpose and for your glory. We pray this now in the mighty name of Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior, and all of God's people said.